0: This is Giant. I got your visual. Come them Mike. I'm standing by you. Roger. I'll be there in a the couple of mics. In the meantime, give them help.
1: You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast, episode six, with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and my lovely host, Bindu. Eh? Handy Bindu. What you're about to listen to is a two-ish hour interview we conducted with none other than Chris Cox, formerly of the Rhodesian Light Infantry and British South Africa Police, police anti-terrorism unit. In 1988, Chris published the seminal book, on the Rhodesian Bush War Experience, Fire Force, which is now entering into its fifth publication at the time of us recording this podcast in March 2021. In many ways, this was the book that got me into Rhodesian history. And in many ways as well, it was a punch in the gut to a lot of the preconceived notions, and myths that I understood to be this very, very complex conflict. You may also notice that you are listening to this podcast, of course, potentially on our friend's website at commandoblog.com, or... Very well, you could be listening on our new website, the menamongmenstories.com. Mm-hmm. We're very proud of that. Yeah, Bindi's put in a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So hopefully you're enjoying the website and there aren't too
2: many functionality issues. Please let us know if there's any problems. We'll try and get that addressed as quickly as possible. Indeed.
1: Um, of course, you can always support this podcast and the work that we do here. On our Subscribe Star link should be on the top right-hand corner. A link to support us. We'll link to our Subscribe Star on this website, as well as the podcast descriptions on Commando Blog and the podcast descriptions on the website itself. We'll have a link to our Subscribe Star there. Um, I, I gotta add again. This was just such a an honor. Totally. Chris is a cool cat. Very much and so. And it was um, it was pretty cool to get the opportunity to chat with him. And uh, we really hope you enjoy this one. It was it was a cool it was we hope it's was, it it was it's as good for you uh, as it is for us. And again if you enjoy it, um, please do check us out menamongmenstories.com. Support us there or consider supporting ring Fireforceventures.com, my website, uh, and do read our friends' work, friends' and colleagues' work at commandoblog.com.
2: Where so many historians choose to focus on prominent personalities and battlefield tactics, this is the story of a soldier's war. It is a gripping and bittersweet look at Army life. Fireforce is one of the few books to emerge from that era, which is brutally honest and intensely moving. Fire Force will be the Rhodesian War, what remarks all quiet on the Western Front was to World War One, a high claim indeed, but perhaps valid, for this moving book is a classic in any sense.
1: Those were just some excerpts from various reviews that have been written over the past few decades about Chris Cox's seminal work, Fire Force, which deals with his time in Three Commando, Rhodesian Light Infantry, from 1976 until the independence of Zimbabwe. Shortly thereafter, um, within within basically a three-year three, month, three year period, Chris serves through Three Commando RLI. He discusses in his first book, Fire Force, and he carries on with a follow-up book, which unfortunately we have not read, Survival Course. Not yet. Not yet which deals with his time in the British South Africa Police, Patu. Today, we are joined by none other than Mr. Chris Cox himself to discuss Fire Force. Mr. Chris Cox, welcome to the Men Among Men Stories podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, It is... A distinct honor to have you here as as we mentioned just before uh i'm i'm a big fan of fire force of you and uh all all the amazing editing and writing work you've done kind of cataloging the rhodesian bush war in in many ways and being the go-to resource for for many people and i think bindu probably
2: yeah no i definitely agree
1: concurs yeah um so it's a huge honor to have you here. Uh, we're very excited that uh, you've taken the opportunity to do this podcast interview with us. Despite the time zone differences, hopefully this is all going to work out and, and go smoothly. And yes. um, we'll, we'll, we'll jump right into it.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Chris, uh, first of all, what was it like growing up in Rhodesia? Because you are a true blue roadie. You're uh, born and bred, aren't you? Uh, I am indeed. Um I think it was <clears throat>
0: more by uh, accident than any kind of design. Uh, my my father uh, was English and my mother was South African, um, ultimately of, of English descent but the mm-hmm. family had been there a couple of hundred years and they just happened to, my dad happened to get a job in, in Rhodesia the year before I was born and so yeah I was born there in 57. Um, there was a lot of um, Rhodesia at the time was a, was a colony, a colony of the um, the British Empire, I guess, the, the tail end of the British British Empire. It was a self governing colony, and it had been since 1923, and it was looking for dominion status, like Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, but that never happened. Um, so yeah, I was, I was born in Rhodesia, and um, which ultimately became what it is today, Zimbabwe. Yeah.
2: Could you maybe elaborate on what it was like, you know, going to school in Rhodesia? Or was there an expectation, like sort of a military culture for. Or were there cadets? Yeah. whether
1: was there like sort of. Because um, obviously, Southern Rhodesia had military history dating back to the 1890s. Um, and obviously the great war and the second world war and ian smith was a second world war pilot as we know was there kind of a martial culture was it just sports and uh, what 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 was it like growing up in i guess just in the 50s for us as millennials that didn't go to school in the 50s because we've heard all kinds of interesting stories
0: yeah good question um yeah very much a kind of um martial history, as you say, going back to the 1890s, when the uh, the territory was first colonized uh, by what became ultimately the the British South Africa police, the BSAP. Um, and that's where uh, the, the sort of martial tradition started, there were a series of, of um, what they called at the time native rebellions, the the two main tribes in in the country um, rebelled, that was in 1896. Um, and then there was the Anglo Boer War of uh, 1899 to 1902. And um, Rhodesia contributed uh, several hundred uh, men to fight in that conflict um, uh, for, for the British. Um, and then of course, along came the First World War, um, and the Second World War. And um, yeah, uh, men of all colours, um, Rhodesians uh, fought in those conflicts. Uh, the Rhodesian African Rifles, we'll talk about them later. So they started life as the Rhodesian Native Regiment and fought in East Africa against von Leto Vorbeck, the, the sort of legendary German commander there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> in the Second World War, they were they fought in the in the Burma campaign, and of course, on the the white Rhodesians, still very much a racially divided country. Um, they, they fought all over uh, a lot were in the Rhodesian uh, Royal Air Force, uh, fought in the Battle of Britain. Um, and a lot were involved in the long range desert group. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the, um, the sort of martial tradition comes from. I think pro rata, the, the number of servicemen per population that contributed to the um, war effort in the Second World War, uh, was the highest in the world out of of any colony or dominion. Um, Yeah, so that, and then after World War Two, then we had uh, the um, Malayan campaign, and which is where the uh, Rhodesian SAS effectively was founded, or they weren't called that at the time. But that's where they cut their teeth. And the Rhodesian Air Force, which was always um, uh, a strong organisation um, for a little country, uh, was seeing action in um, sewers in uh, Aden, mm-hmm. and various places around the globe. So right through the 50s, Rhodesian forces were involved in the um, conflicts so so what, yeah what year were you born 1957 so you were just
1: kind of probably the tail end of the uh, Malaysian mission Malaysian emergency um did you did, yeah. you did you ever have like veterans of that conflict as teachers growing up or
0: coaches Oh yeah very much so um I all our senior uh, senior officers uh, staff corps they were all veterans of that conflict from general Peter walls down I mean he he was a young subaltern in Malaya. Uh, Rodney Daly, who, who you probably know, started the Salus Scouts. Uh, he was a um, sergeant in in the um, Malayan campaign. So I think a lot of our tactics um, uh, and, and strategies uh, evolved from from the Malaya. From Malaya,
2: Malaysia was one of the uh, most successful counterinsurgency wars, probably of all time. So yeah, yeah, you learn from the best,
1: I guess. <laughs> that's one. uh,
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh,
0: Probably try to replicate it a little bit too closely in that (laughs) Africa wasn't quite uh, the same as um, uh, Malaya. Uh, For example, the, um, the protected villages and uh, that that concept the protected villages and concentrated villages, Mm. that whole concept started in Malaya, and it worked there. Uh, But it when they try to do that in um, Rhodesia, the country was too big, uh, the population too too big and too spread out, and in in the end, it just didn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So g- graduating high school, um, or you know, it, I, I don't know what it's called in Rhodesia, like secondary school or whatever, uh, coming out of that and going into the wide world, we mentioned it in our first two episodes of. Which cover your book Fire Force. By the way, if you haven't listened to po- podcast episode one and two, please do before moving forward in this podcast. We we go over the book and basically give a full rundown of the book without entirely reading it. Uh, but you're you're on a train to South Africa at the beginning of of the book, despite kind of being surrounded by 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 this martial culture what was what was going through your mind around that time when you were 17, eighteen growing up in this world?
0: Rhodesia, I think as I mentioned, was a uh, racially divided country as all uh, British colonies were at the time yeah um, I w- I won't go so far as to say that it was an apartheid system, but effectively it was and um, whites were the the top rung of the ladder right mm-hmm. um, so I mean, uh non white kids couldn 't go to white schools for example yeah um bl- blacks could not buy property in white areas, so it was very much a kind of that was changing it was a it was more of a paternalistic dare i say um kind of um system rather than um, like it was in south Africa, which was for crumpta africannidom you know the, um, mm. which means real true uh, stop the the whole swat Khafar, the black tide sweeping the country. Uh, Rhodesia was different. But nevertheless, it was a, a very um, racially divided country. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a private school, which was um, private schools were allowed to be multiracial. So I had, um, I grew up with with non white kids. Uh, and Come to I, I saw the iniquities and and the the problems. I mean, for example, uh, if we played sport um, against a government school, a state school, um, uh, we weren't allowed to field non-white um, players in our team. For example, mm-hmm. if we were playing away, non-white was anyone who was not really Anglo-Saxon. Um, so that included um, Asians. Um, Uh, Chinese, I mean, I had a friend at junior school who was a Chinese guy. He wasn't allowed to play play sport, um, that kind of thing. So there were a lot of inequities, and um, uh, a lot of the Rhodesian front, which was Ian Smith's political party, which was in power at the time, um, were fairly right-wing people, and uh of the the old school and they just could not see that that Rhodesia would ever uh they couldn't see that Rhodesia could ever come out of this racial um mix and into a more equitable society and well that's was the cause of the whole war so i was at the time i was fairly liberal in in my attitude um my parents uh were liberal um and I decided I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight this war. There, there was a, there was a, um, at the time it was national service. Every white child, every boy, um, was required by law to do a 12 months national service, um, conscription, military conscription, um, and they, they, extended that in time to include Asians, um, and people of mixed race. Um, So I thought, well, no, I'm not going to do this. I got on a train with my sisters to go to South Africa to visit my grandmother. And I was determined I was going (laughs) to jump off the train, come back and run away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Which was a fairly common thing. Um, I wouldn't say that common among among, among white kids. But a lot of them were kind of, um, well, we're going to send you out the country to university and you never come back, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that sort of thing. So. But yes, there was an expectation that military service was rite of passage that you just had to go through. Um, In the end, I kind of chickened out, and I never did it, and I came back and uh, joined the army.
1: It it sounds like there was
0: my opportunity there. Yeah,
1: yeah, it sounds like there was a dichotomy in in Rhodesia. There was almost two worlds. There was the world of um, definitely certain people in the Rhodesian Front and there was a there was another world that kind of was looking far further in the future and um and recognizing that obviously having a paternalistic society for this long wasn't you know in the era of decolonization wasn't really going to last so um and it, untenable. Yeah, yeah, it was untenable and, uh, you, exactly. And you, exactly. and you saw kind of, you had the unique experience growing up, kind of seeing both, both sides of this basically. Um,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, to give you an example, I mean, the, the Rhodesian African rifles who were fine soldiers and they, they had a tradition going back to the great war, yep. the world war. I mean, uh, even as late as 1967, 68, somewhere like that, um, the Rhodesian front, front actively voted against black soldiers becoming officers. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean it was a, a kind of dinosaur thinking in in, in many respects. Mm. Um, it it changed quickly, but um, at, at at a cost. Um, I mean, when when Ian Smith declared unilateral declaration of independence in one thousand nine hundred sixty five from from Britain. Um, that triggered everything, and uh, I mean, almost immediately, um, ZANU and ZAPU, the liberation movements, uh, the, the cadres have been sent to China and Russia and East Germany for training, um, Algeria, all sorts of places uh, before that, and um, so they already had a, um, an element in place to, to com- commence an armed struggle, as they call it. Um, and that started quite quickly in 1966. The first um, guerrilla incursions from from neighbouring Zambia and uh, Mozambique started mainly Zambia.
2: People have called the Rhodesian Bush War sort of an undeclared war. That there was never like a a starting battle or declaration of hostilities. It was sort of just dur- around UDI sort of guerrilla activity became much more prevalent and, you know, raids started happening, but there wasn't like a, I mean, Arbnic- a flashpoint yeah. event. Nickel then- Would you, would you Arbnickel. say
0: that's correct, Chris? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very accurate um, uh, um, way of looking at it. It started with um, 1966, the first sort of formal incursions. And I'm, I mean, we're talking small numbers here, maybe um, in a year, um, perhaps a couple of hundred only would uh, across the Zambezi River from from Zambia um, and the Rhodesian efforts at the time were what were based around what they call border control so it was effectively guarding the borders um, uh, against these incursions and um, when the guerrillas came across just killing them uh, capturing them you know uh, it 1968 was um, a little bit of a watershed year in terms of um, incursions in that uh, ZAPU and ZANU uh, hooked up with the South African ANC, African National Congress, uh, the guerrillas. And so you had three liberation movements, and they came in in fairly significant numbers for the time, I'd say significant, probably several hundred. and. It was, it was an operation called Operation Cauldron in 1968 in the Zambezi Valley, which is where uh, the Rhodesian Light Infantry really kind of cut their teeth in terms of counterinsurgency warfare. Um, the problem that the guerrillas had at the time is the areas they were coming across through were all extremely inhospitable uh, countryside, um, and a lot of it was uninhabited. So they were coming across the Zambezi Valley, uh, through National Park areas, um, game reserves, no people. Uh, so they had no sucker, they had no, um, uh, no local support from the, the local populace. And um, they were up against uh, sort of Rhodesian light infantry and others, Rhodesian African rifles and the Territorials, which I'll mention later, and and of course, the Rhodesian Air Force. Um, and it was an operation cauldron that the Rhodesian Air Force was sort of able to hone their skills at aerial tracking, for example. Yeah, so that, that ended badly for for the guerrillas, and they sort of went away and licked their wounds, basically. Um, and the, the Rhodesian sort of thought, well, another military victory, so to speak. And uh, f- between 1968, uh, for the next three or four years, um, the war as a, it wasn't even known as the Bush War then, it was, it was known as, um, terrorist incursions, really, um, mm. there, there, was no, uh, the BSAP was still regarded as the senior regiment, um, in the, in the Rhodesian forces, and it was still regarded as, um, uh, a criminal activity, mm. so these, these trained guerrillas, which they were, would be arrested and charged, um, Rather than uh, taken as prisoners of war, there was no declared war, no, they were taken as charged, were sent to court, and invariably hanged um, for carrying weapons of war and committing um, acts of war, uh, acts of war, and murder, and all sorts of things. So, the next major, and in the meantime, Zanu and Zapu were having their own sort of um, squabbles and. Uh, um, uh, to sort each other out in Lusaka and Zambia and that sort of thing, and in the end, um, ZANU effectively um, broke away from ZAPU and sort of moved to Mozambique. Um, and the next major incursion was in 1972, so four years had elapsed since Cauldron. Um, very low-key uh, border control operations took place then. Um, and in 1972, there were major uh, infiltrations, particularly by uh, Zanu, um, that was now headed up by Mugabe, um, from Mozambique into the northeastern area of the country. Now, this time it was slightly different because they were moving through heavily populated areas with the, the local populace, what they call the areas known as a tribal trust lands. Th- these were all the essentially the tribes people of the country and the rural people, um, that's where they lived. And now the guerrillas were able to adopt the Chairman Mao tactics of mixing with the people, swimming, you know, the fish and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and um, attack um, white farmers, white farmsteads, um, attack um, military um, facilities, police, police stations, that sort of thing. And that was a fairly... Um, comprehensive, and it took the Rhodesians by surprise. Uh, caught them napping. Um, they started uh, mining roads, uh, um, and it quickly realized that the landmine was a huge weapon in the in the guerrilla arsenal. Um, and so, the Rhodesian casualties ma- mounted, for the time, alarmingly um, because of that. And uh, so, that, that continued till... And it was then uh, that the Rhodesians finally woke up uh, and and started realizing that this was more than the incursions of the 60s. This was a a more organized um, incursion with big numbers now, or bigger numbers, we're probably talking about um, into the hundreds, um, if not thousands of of guerrillas starting to infiltrate the country. in 1974, uh, which was the next kind of um, important um, date, is when the 73-74 actually is, is when the whole Fire Force concept uh, was developed as a way of um, dealing with the guerrillas and, and the whole uh, military structure uh, that, that we came to know I- in the Bush War was established. Um, with uh, various uh, JOCS, Joint Operational Centers, established across the country, particularly in the northeast in what had now been declared the Operation Hurricane area. And that was in 74, and the war started hotting up uh, from that time on. And uh, the regular units, Rhodesian African Rifles, uh, Rhodesian Light Infantry, SAS, etc., started taking casualties. Um, significant casualties, um, comparatively tiny uh, compared to the, the guerrillas. But <clears throat> nevertheless, I started taking casualties and fire force became a regular thing. Um, in 1976, which is when I joined, mm-hmm. uh, that was now the sort of, I call the third phase of of the war, which is when the guerrillas, um, a, a seminal event had occurred in the meantime in 1975 when Mozambique was uh, given independence from Portugal. which uh, Portugal had been a friend of Rhodesia's um, and Rhodesia's um, access to the ports of um, Baira and uh, Lorenzo Marx, which is now Maputo. Uh, were the uh, Rhodesian lifeline, as it were, in terms of imports. All Rhodesia's fuel came through Bara. Um, 1975, the, the Portuguese walked away, uh, gave um, Mozambique independence, Portuguese East Africa, as it was known, uh, handed it on a plate to Frelimo, who was a, a, zapu, a ZANU ZANLA ally, um, Samora Michelle, and he invited. Zanla, the military wing of, of ZANU, into into Mozambique, and they set up um, a whole string of uh, camps, uh, training camps and bases inside Mozambique. And in 1976, uh, all these bases were activated, uh, and another massive incursion. Not, I say massive. It, it again now probably numbering um, 17. Uh, sorry, several thousand into Rhodesia across the eastern border. Now, the, the eastern border was with with Mozambique was about 1,200 kilometers long. And to police that border was almost impossible. Um, they, The Rhodesians did a whole lot of stuff. They had a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, what was known as a cordon sanitaire minefield that ran um, the length of the top half of the border from... Um, around the bulge of, of Rhodesia at the top, down to about midway, to, to a town called Umtali. Um, they tried to extend it, but now suddenly, uh, the Rhodesians found themselves no longer with just the Operation Hurricane area, which was in the northeast of the country, but the whole east and southeast of the country um, was now uh, infiltrated heavily mm-hmm. with, with guerrillas. Yeah. Um, and they opened up what's known as the Operation Thrasher area along the east eastern border, and the Operation Repulse area which is along the southeastern border, with fire force bases along the way. Yeah, and that set the stage for the the, the fourth and what I call the final stage stage of the war. Yeah, to 1980.
1: And that's uh, that's where you come in. This so you obviously you you grow up as this slow burn. From the first incursion, op, you know the Op Nickel, Op Cauldron, in the early, in the mid '60s, shortly after UDI, and um, you're on that train actually in 1976, basically watching this war escalate. Um, probably seeing casualty reports on the news, and uh, you ultimately do decide not to go to South Africa. Mm-hmm. You you come back.
2: Yeah, you mentioned the the training in your book was very difficult, like almost uh, and Spartan in nature to yeah, some degree. Yeah. Um, how do you think the training in the Rhodesian military yeah. compared to training other armies, say the British or the Americans, at the and, time? And,
1: and for context, you do go back and join the Rhodesian Light Infantry. I don't think they assign you to a commando yet. Uh, correct no, me if I'm wrong. No, so they, um, it's just you're just a bronze badged recruit very, recruit yeah, you're a recruit yeah, you're yeah. another national serviceman showing yeah. up um, yeah you do show yeah. up 1976 as this war is starting to get a little hairy you show yeah. up what, what was I, yeah
0: the, the religion light infantry was a regular um, unit so uh, however 1974. Um, the Rhodesian Light Infantry had traditionally drawn most of its uh, recruits from South Africa and the UK, and obviously uh, from internally from Rhodesia, people like Rodney Daly, who was the first RSM of the battalion. Right. Um, in 1974, uh, they had a major uh, problem in terms of recruitment, um, and so they were forced um, by necessity to conscript, to, to take advantage of, the, of conscription. So... National servicemen who traditionally went to the independent companies or part of the territorial army, as, uh, as I mentioned, um, were, were drawn off, some were drawn off and sent to the Rhodesian Light Infantry. So it was titled potluck. Um, you know, your name goes in a hat and, and they say, well, you've got to report to, um, uh, this was in November 75, you've got to report to Cranbourne Barracks which happened to be the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Everyone else uh, went to um, Llewellyn Barracks in Boulogne, which was the Rhodesia Regiment, which was the um, reserve regiment of the army. Yeah, essentially uh, reserve soldiers. Um, But the the conscripts would do the national service there or in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Um, And when I got called up, it was just luck of the draw or not that I ended up going to... Cranwell Barracks, Rhodesian Light Infantry. Um, yeah, so I attested on I think it was eighth of January nineteen seventy six as a raw recruit, and got stuck into <laughs> uh, the, um, training training program. I think the the, the 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 training program was no different to I don't think to any other militaries. It was very much based on the British Army. Um, I think it was a twenty week course, to become an infantryman, um, broken down into six weeks of basic training, which probably equates to what the, the Americans call boot camp, um, with fit, fitness, uh, drill, marching, that, that kind of thing. Then the second six weeks period is known as the classical warfare phase. And then the third and last uh, six-week phase was known as the, the uh, counterinsurgency phase, um, so, you know, obviously you, you focus on the two different aspects of, of warfare in those second and third phases. After six weeks, you had the opportunity to to go and specialize um, if you wanted or if you were needed, you could go become a signaler or um, a medic or whatever. But um, there was a limit to, to those and so most of us stayed on as as infantrymen and did the 20-week course. But in terms of, of being difficult. I don't think it was anywhere near as as hard as what the U.S. Marines or, or the, the SAS go through, uh, for example. But um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty comprehensive, uh, 20 weeks, and at the end of it, right. you came out as a brand new trooper.
1: And uh, you, you mentioned the specializations. Uh, they're also pulling officers out of these, uh, these ranks of national servicemen. I remember you, I think it is... It, 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 You did get assessed to be an officer. Yeah, the
0: officer (laughs) very briefly (laughs) had an officer selection board. Yeah, yeah. Um, Officers generally, uh, regular officers were required to do a thirteen or fourteen month course at the School of Infantry in Guelo. However, again, I had a shortage of officers, so they plucked out national servicemen and trained them up um, on a Four and a half month course, the same as us recruits, mm. and they came out as sent to um uh, Guilla School of Infantry and they came out as uh, second lieutenants or sergeants or senior NCOs, <clears throat> and they were then allocated to wherever, um, to, to the uh, independent companies or to Rhodesian Light Infantry, whoever needed an officer, uh, was sent these guys, yeah. yeah.
1: And what, what did they tell you when uh, when? Because I remember there, there's a moment where they are looking for officers. Um, <laughs> I remember that was a, it's a funny it's a funny piece in the book.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I mean the the whole Rhodesian um, culture was very much uh, geared to the sort of dare I say this kind of jock mentality. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, you know. Good sportsman, loud, abrasive, brash, mm-hmm. and more, um,
1: more, more British than the British I've heard, almost.
0: In some respects, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So no, I didn't, I didn't get to be an officer, um, yeah. Which is kind of interesting because it defined my my path in the mm-hmm. Rhodesian Light Infantry, which I wouldn't have changed with, with hindsight, yeah.
2: The one weapon that is kind of iconic to the Rhodesian Bush War is the... Uh, FNFAL. F- FAL. Yeah, you carried that into battle. What are your thoughts on that weapon?
1: And, and training too, you know, there's a yes. lot of... Yes, and, and you're trained, I
2: assume, with that weapon uh, as well.
1: By the time you made it there to Three Commando, the Lovers, you know, yeah. the with a big banana flag, which we'll, we'll have to talk about in a moment, um, sure. you were... You were, you were slinging around a uh, FN rifle. What were your thoughts on that weapon?
0: It was a fine weapon. Um, mm-hmm. It was um, compared to the AK-47 and the SKS, the standard guerrilla weapons, it was a sophisticated, um, finely tuned weapon. It needed a lot more maintenance uh, than the, um, the, the AK, um, but it the, the advantage it had over the AK, for example, was its superior hitting power and uh, distance. Not that distance was too much of an issue, mm-hmm. but I mean, it could go through a tree. It was 7.62 long, the yeah. round, as opposed to the AK-47 7.62 intermediate. Um, it took the same ammunition as um, the SLR, pretty well the same weapon as the self-loading rifle, which the BSAP and some of the territorials used. Um, the only difference between an FN and SLR was, I think the SLR had a carrying handle and um, had a very different shaped um, flash hider. That's right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah um, uh, but yeah, a really good weapon. Um, the, the disadvantages of it um, were, it, it was quite long, um, it, a little bit unwieldy at times, um, in close confinement of thick bush. Um, but you worked with that, you know, you lived with that was, your, that was your rifle, that's what you lived with, but it was a fine weapon, it really was. Um, uh, there were a few variations. Um, uh, we managed to find, a, it, it took a standard 20-round magazine, um, but there were a few 30-round magazine and even 40-round 40, 40 magazines floating around, which we, um, it was always nice to have a 30-round magazine on your weapon when you went into action. So you, you had a, a full house, so to speak, mm-hmm. of rounds on your weapon. Um, I found the 40 round magazine tended to unbalance the weapon a little bit. But uh, it, it had the, um, it, it, it had three functions, um, single shot, semi automatic, and no, two, two, um, single shot, semi automatic and fully automatic. But the fully automatic was just crazy. I mean, You'd, you'd go through your your 20 rounds in a couple of seconds that's right and so it was hopeless yeah you know? and because it was quite a powerful weapon it, it bucked it kicked up quite heavily um so we found um most of our shooting because our, our all our um uh, contacts were at fairly close range so you didn't need the distance uh, and the accuracy so much but uh, where i think we excelled was the um, I'm not sure what, what it's called. Uh, we called it the open sighted shooting, uh, where you learn to you don't sight the weapon. You you use the weapon as an extension of your arm, and open eyes, both eyes open, no aiming, and you, it's like you're pointing your arm and uh, mm-hmm. you, you're firing two rounds, double tap, ba ba, in one hit, as opposed to single shot or fully automatic. And that became, uh, I mean, we practiced that and practiced that. It became second nature. You could do it, do it with the eyes closed almost. And I think that was that accounted for a lot of our success, and and saved a lot of lot of lives too. I mean, that, that double sighted shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the the disadvantage became in terms of its weight. It was a heavy weapon for a rifle, and um, as a uh, As paratroopers, when we were trained as paras in 1977, um, it was quite a cumbersome weapon to strap into your your parachute webbing, Um, where, I mean, some of the officers managed to snivel for themselves folding butt AKs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, not AKs, folding butt FNs, FNs. um, which goodness knows where those came from, because those weren't standard issue at all. But they were superb weapons, those um, folding butts. I think they might have come from South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah FNs are brilliant weapons, perfect for paratroopers. Um, nice and compact as well. But those were few and far between. We were stuck with the old um, FN, some of which had wooden butts, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I, but...
1: did, did you also carry the uh, MAG at any point?
0: I did, a you lot. Did, yeah, a okay, lot, um, yeah. Yeah, now that that was a uh, that was a superior weapon and I think it still is today um, oh yeah oh yeah yeah, um, yeah that was uh yeah, heavy 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 but um yeah I think I, I'd only been when I when I qualified as a, an infantryman and went into the commander it was in my sort of second bush trip a bush trip was six six weeks six weeks in the Mm-hmm. in the bush, um, and then uh, 10 days back at base, retraining and on and on. So it was my second bush trip that um, our, our troop sergeant said, here we go, it was the MOG, and it took a lot of getting used to to handle those things. Uh, they really were, were heavy, um, awkward uh, mm-hmm. as anything to carry. Um, there were various ways of, I mean, going into action, you weren't allowed to carry it on your shoulder. You, know, yeah. you had to have it at the ready slung yep. um, or if you're a really strong guy like some of them were you carried it like a rifle in your shoulder but I couldn't do that it was too heavy um, but what a fantastic weapon and um, yeah. I think again this uh, this, uh, this probably accounts for some of our success is that in our sort of the fire force sticks a stick was four men uh, four men only because four men and what could be carried in a an Alouette three helicopter. So a stick was four men, three riflemen and one MAG gunner. So the ratio of uh, a, a machine gun uh, in in your section, in in your platoon or troop, as we called our, our our platoons, was high. I mean, you know, if we had uh, six sticks, for example, that was six MAG guns. That's a lot of firepower, you know. And yeah. I mean each. MAG gunner, he had access to, i six hundred rounds, and um, plus each rifleman carried a, a belt, fifty round belt, uh, for him. So he he had a lot of firepower, a lot of hitting power. Yeah, yeah,
1: the, great uh, weapon,
0: great weapon. Yeah,
1: I think our, our American listeners would probably know it now as the M240 Bravo, and um, for you know myself, uh, I know it here in Canada as a C6, still the same okay. Woodstock hasn't changed the lick. Well, I think they're updating them now after, yeah. I mean, it just shows the service life. I carry yeah. basically an MAG. Um, you know, I fired an MAG identical to probably what was used during the Rhodesian Bush war. I, I remember so this
0: is, yeah, this is the FN. Huh? FN this is, MAG. yeah, yeah.
1: They're, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if ours are in Canada or FN, they might be indigenously produced, but they've got the, they're like identical more or less. They're yeah. built under license. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, yeah 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 and yeah. Uh, uh yeah again sorry that's interrupt the, the problem with the MAG again uh, was when we became paratrained. oh yeah to strap to strap that guy yeah i mean we, we went in paratrend making making things up as we went along we had no idea how to do this <laughs> and um so we just sort of strapped it in almost like with a bit of rope on each your side <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really was primitive um and uh, hang on, the the, the barrel's going to get yeah. stuck in the dirt when you land, so we just yeah. covered that with a bit of and you a, plastic bag. And you had yeah. a
1: spear barrel too, another spare yeah, barrel you yeah. had to carry. It's it, it's yeah. basically like the size of a small child that you're you're just you're hauling around more or less. If, Probably if the same weight, yeah. too. <laughs> About the same weight, yeah. yeah that's that's it. Yeah, oh. yeah.
0: But, but what a beautiful weapon! Absolutely beautiful. Weapon. And
1: um, yeah. there is there's a. Yeah. Pic- there's there's a picture in your book and there's a mention of uh, one Marius Murray who Marius um, Moray, Marius Murray Mar- yeah, Marius yeah, yeah. Marais Marais, Apologies for the pronunciation there. Uh, he, yeah. I, from this picture, he's a huge dude. Uh, why don't you describe him for us? Because you did mention he, I think he was able to fire it from the shoulder, which is crazy.
0: Oh yeah yeah like yeah yeah, some of those those big guys were. I mean, yeah. he was massive. That was actually taken. Um, that photograph was uh, fairly iconic. It was a recruit, uh, used as a recruiting poster. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it had this picture of Maurice Murray. Um, yeah. I mean, he would, he would handle an MAG like a toy. He really would. Um, but yeah, he was an interesting character. He, he, he was killed soon after the war, sadly enough. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. For, for those that yeah. haven't seen the picture it is fairly iconic. You can you can find it around. It's just him. He's got a big smile on his face. Looks like a very jolly fellow. Uh, he's got he's got the Vic he Beaver was. victory sign. Uh, and yeah, 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 yeah. that uh, mag yeah. looks more like you know a little 22 <laughs> or something. <laughs> something it it's tiny
2: on him. He's it a just, big guy. Yeah, because
0: yeah, big guy Morris. Yeah. Um,
2: mm-hmm. Firearms aside, was the gear you were provided with in the RLI satisfactory or? Is there anything you wish you had had out there that you didn't?
0: It wasn't satisfactory. It was appalling. Apart from the weapons, the FN, the MAG, the, yeah. the grenades, we had a whole array of hand grenades and um, rockets and things like that, which were all pretty bulk standard. But the yeah. um, the actual webbing and your equipment was... Shocking! It really was. I mean, Rhodesia was was um, was sang- was facing sanctions, international sanctions. So, y- you know, to get anything imported was almost impossible. So, for example, all the webbing, um, all, all you know, all, all your your patches, everything like that was all made locally, and it was it fell apart in five minutes. It really was. So, we would substitute our webbing for whatever we could find, anything was, um, better quality than, than what we had. And, uh, um, I mean, my webbing was a, a combination of, um, South African defense force, good stuff, mm-hmm. good, solid, heavy stuff. Yep, um, yep. Uh, I mean, the guys, the Vietnam vets who brought own webbing, they had amazing stuff, um, uh, in the commando. Um, and a lot of, um, East German and, um, soviet stuff as well which was far superior to to anything we had um which in in some respects uh, um prompted the development of um chest webbing which became very popular um it wasn't standard issue but um the guerrillas pretty well all had chest webbing, Chinese or, you know, old communist origin, and it was good quality stuff, good canvas, solid stuff. And um, a lot of our people um, started u- copying this and getting it made up locally to their specs, um, into their own kind of chest webbing. And then from there, it developed into uh, almost like a fire force jacket. So, you mm. know, when you, when a call out came, rather than just um, uh, putting on your chest webbing or, or I never wore chest webbing or a fire force jacket. I use my own that could double up as, um, either for, a for an MAG, I use those patches for, for belts. Um, so the other guys with their jackets would just shrug on their jacket and everything was in there, all the magazines, all mm. the grenades, everything was in there. So, and, and those were well-made. They were made to spec, um, as opposed to the mass produced rubbish. Right. right. That we're, we had were
1: yeah. the, uh, we're yeah. the fire, I understand a lot of the Fire Force jackets were produced, like, indigenously, private purchase. Um, I've seen a few of the originals. I've played around with some of the originals. Uh, How did you guys deal with wearing that kind of kit? Especially if it was, like, that atrocious original army issue webbing. How did you deal with that in the heat? Because canvas is... uh...
0: Yeah, no, no. I mean, I I couldn't abide it. That's why I never wore um, chest webbing. a because if you're lying down, you know, in the prone position, you're lying down, you with magazines digging into your chest, um, I couldn't couldn't stand it. And, and like you say, particularly because of the heat, um, and, and 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 sweating and that sort of thing. So I prefer to have everything on my hips, and that's the kind of webbing I wore. Yeah, much better. Yeah,
1: yeah um, I know that a lot of the you know anti anti poaching groups that I'm working with uh, in in my company they run they still when when they're doing stuff in the limpopo it's all it's all still hip on the hip because of the just because of that heat it's it was intense what what were what were the um what were the i guess the seasons uh and and the and the rough temperatures obviously in the uk right. you you probably have a little nicer now maybe a little more rain but um what what was it like yeah. uh throughout the year
0: they had basically two seasons, um, summer and winter, um, and a wet season and a dry season. Um, So from November through to April was the wet season. That's when the rains came. And then the rest of the May through to sort of September was winter, which was the dry months, and could get very cold. Uh, Temperatures, I I mean, I I can't remember Fahrenheit, but in Celsius. In the Zambezi Valley, you'd get up to fifty degrees in the shade. Um, wow. Where, whereas, if in, in sort of deepest winter up in the uh, the Eastern Highlands on the Mozambique border, you'd get down to minus three or four Celsius. Yeah. So it varied considerably.
1: Wow, that's a that's a range.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a range. Yeah. You
2: mentioned the,
0: the gr- Sorry, I just wanted to add quickly that the gorillas used the rainy season as their major infiltration months. Mm-hmm. A, mainly because A, there was water yep. available and B, because of cover. Um, mm-hmm. there, so the bush was thick a lot of cover then. Whereas in winter, it was very dry, no water. Um, bush had all died or been burned or, you know. And,
1: yeah. and, and there's my understanding that there's almost, there's certain times of day in, in the dry season, that basically no one can even really operate like you can't it's just unless you're very yeah brave, but there's certain times yeah. where it's just you know when the sun's at its peak um yeah Things kind of grind to a halt right
0: yeah they do yeah yeah, yeah, they do. yeah.
1: Uh, on both sides you know uh, absolutely cause just because no yeah. one you, you physically cannot go around humping ammo and stuff when when it's that hot, yeah, especially absolutely. canvas yeah. canvas webbing. Yeah. Uh,
2: you mentioned you were stung in the finger in the book by a scorpion, and I've had <laughs> a lot of other um, and, a, and a rifle butt in the eye too. Yeah, a lot of other uh, <laughs> but by the... a lot of other authors we've read have also talked about things like thorn bushes and yeah. stuff. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like fighting in the actual African environment? Because that sounds sometimes like it was just as dangerous as the gorillas.
0: Yeah, it, it could be um, uh, the, every creepy crawly that was out to get you. I mean, you know, obviously things like scorpions, um, uh, snakes, obviously, were, were a big one. Um, you yeah. had all the, all the sort of stories of people jumping into their sleeping bag and there's a cobra lying on the bottom. Or, uh, yeah, yeah a, lot of, yeah, a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that goes with the territory. But it was and, and and wildlife as well. I mean, large parts of the country were um, national parks. So dedicated solely to to wildlife. And um, so, you, you know, you, you have to be careful where you based up. Um, if you were doing a sweep uh, along a river line, for example, you know, that they were game g- paths that game used. Um, and there were a lot of incidents with um, lion elephant, rhino, um, hippo, um, turning boats upside down. Um, so that did happen. Yeah. But I think the the, the the major aggravation, the major challenges were things like buffalo beans, um, which we've had guys Kazovac or Medivac, as they uh, call it, uh, because of buffalo beans, which is a, a, a little bean that grows like a creeper and thick bush. Um, and each bean, it's probably about the size of a, a normal um, pot of peas, but it has these fine, fine, fine little, little hairs. And if you brush up alongside that, watch out, you know, those hairs get into your skin. And, uh, you know, I've seen people use several tubes of calamine or, uh, lotion to get rid of the stuff. It, it really is bad. And once you get it, once you start stinging, there's no stopping. And I mean, I had people, um, as I say, Kazovac because of, of Buffalo beans, then they're the inevitable things like um, m- mosquitoes, mm-hmm. um, which I believe you guys get big ones. Yeah. Know?
1: Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, but the, these ones were um, malaria carrying. Great. Right. Um, then we had something called tsetse flies, which you got in the, in the low, uh, the Zambezi Valley in the low lung areas, they carried uh, sleeping sickness. Um, and then the Kings were the Mapani flies. Mopani. Yeah. Mponis, yeah mm-hmm. Very, very like a little midge, um, named after the Mapani tree, which was a, a low felt or, a, a, a very low country, um, tree. And these little guys would Get into that, anything with moisture. So your eyes, oh. your nose, your mouth—they would just swarm in and infiltrate you. Yeah, they were—they were killers.
1: I, I've heard they had a from a lot. Not you know, not not just from you, but from multiple multiple sources. Ran, you know, different people I've encountered, um, even people that have just been to that part of the world. Like they have a wicked bite. Like I've heard, like they're like on the on the pain factor. They're like. Really, really high up there. Just
0: the uh, the, the flies. No, that. Yeah. yeah, they, they were agri- irritating, but yeah. not like the. Um, I think you might be getting confused with the tsetse fly.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah, that, they, that they might were be, like.
0: Yeah, yeah they, they were like a horse fly, but okay, a million times worse. Oh man, they're awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then of course all the diseases that come from these beauties, like malaria. and right. I had malaria several yep. times. I've, mm-hmm. and, and tick bite fever. Right. Absolutely dreadful thing yeah so a uh, challenge of doing business yeah,
1: yeah. was it uh, was it something that so you know you've you've you do your um recruit course and then you make it to three commando which again well well i'll have to circle back yeah. to why your flag was a banana because that's a funny story but um <laughs> of, of all the units you had the most interesting flag i think Uh, But is this something at like uh, the unit level, the commando level that they had instructed you on? Was this something that was part of your basic to deal with this environment? Or was it really kind of expected, you know, that you knew? Because obviously it's some foreign volunteers from more temperate environments, let's say. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially young men from the UK would be, this would be a huge shock to them. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of Canadian veterans that it was, uh, it was a, probably even a crazier shock to them. So was it something that was incorporated into your training as well, dealing with that environment? Or was it something that at the uh, unit level was done?
0: I, I think it was kind of taken for granted that you, you kind of knew what you, you should be expecting and, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, you had to take your malaria tablets, for right. example. Yeah, um, it was a chargeable offence if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you you would treat you know you know the medics. Um, you did your basic medics course, on recruits course, and you were you were taught about all the snack bites and what sort of serum and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so, but but it was all pretty sort of um, basic. It was you just got thrown in the deep end really and said well wolf you go, in the bush so, so yeah. for,
1: for you as a native Rhodesian it was probably a little easier but I can imagine for some of your uh, colleagues that came from again colder climates or less exotic places it was a uh, it was a
2: shock um, yeah <laughs> I think people forget how much the the not because so many people in where we live when they think of war they think of world war 1 world war 2 specifically western europe where it's fairly temperate and there's a lot of you know fighting in the trenches and cities and stuff i don't think a lot of people sometimes think of especially here in canada where the last war on canadian soil was fought in the 1880s uh-huh. the, the red river rebellion mm-hmm. think of how dangerous the environment can be like if you had a war in canada today I mean, you'd be losing half your troops to frostbite and grizzly bears. Yeah. I, I don't think yeah. people understand, especially like when lions and malaria and all that, understand how big of a killer that is in wartime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But conversely, um, I don't think I would have liked too much to have been on the eastern front. Yeah. With <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes. those temperatures got oh, yeah. down to what, minus 30, minus yeah. 40? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, horrendous. No, I couldn't do that. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so I'll have to... I, I got to go back to it. There, for context, there there's uh, four commandos in the RLI when they go to this commando system rather than like a battalion system, basically, for, you know, people not tracking them. There's there's one, two, and three commando. There's a support commando, which I, I understand is mostly like heavy weapons and stuff, you know, mortars and heavier machine guns and different things different different supporting roles and uh the yeah. the one to three one two and three were kind of like the line units you were in three commando nicknamed the lovers and your your flag so one commando's flag is like i think it's a it's a it's like it's dagger two commandos flag or is it two commandos flags a dagger
0: two, two commandos a dagger yeah. yeah and
1: then one is the big red right Yes, yes and then and then four yeah. is uh four or sorry not force uh, support commando is the eagle you guys were a yes. banana <laughs> why were you guys a banana
0: that's a very good question yeah. and uh, i mean I, <laughs> a lot of the naming of the commandos <clears throat> went back to the 60s and the the operation cauldron days mm. <clears throat> excuse me and um i think three commando uh from in those days from the oc down uh, certainly all officer corps and a lot of the senior ncos um had this uh appalling reputation for being real um ladies men <laughs> yeah uh and that's where the banana i think came from uh, so, so some sort of symbolism which
1: some is sort beyond of, me but <laughs> some sort of symbolism
2: <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. very esoteric. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And it's a complex inside joke. So was this um by the by the time you're in in this in '76 here joining the unit as a new new trooper, was this yeah was there a bit of bravado attached to that like you guys were the you guys were the lovers was that still a thing in the as as part of the I guess the, the commando culture? Um,
0: yeah, it was. I mean, we were full of it, weren't we? Yeah, I mean, you know, we got rid of the. The brass badge of a recruiter now we had the the hallowed silver badge mm-hmm. of the of the commandos um as you say there were three commanders well there had been three commanders and a support group um just before in 74 i think support group got um commando status so yeah there were four commandos um and as you say support commando um handled all the um the, the sort of heavier weapons um i think they had armored cars even at one stage uh, <clears throat> and uh yeah a plus doing the normal duties of a commander just just going back quickly i mean uh, we were uh, in the early days just a regular infantry battalion and we were supposed to be a regiment um, but we never got more than one battalion because of recruiting problems so we had um a, B, C company and support company. And then in the actual companies, they had platoons, sections, etc. you know, you know, normal, conventional um, British military type, type thing. And then they changed that for some reason. I, I don't understand why, um, to, to make it into a commando unit, which whatever that is. Um, so the companies became commandos and the platoons became troops and um, in the troops, they were broken down because of the fire force operation into sticks. So we did away with sections. Uh, and um, joining as a recruit, the, the, the squads or the training squads, were all um, named after colors. So you had red squad, blue squad, green squad and yellow squad. And I just happened to end up in green squad, which fed into three commander, which whose color was green. And red one commander, right? Two blue commander. You yeah, had yeah, blue two commander and yellow support commander. So it was again in a sort of just by accident that I ended up in in three commander. Yeah.
2: Uh, you mentioned in the book that you interact sometimes with other parts of the Rhodesian forces, like the Selous Scouts, uh, the Rhodesian African Rifles, um, the Rhodesian SAS. Can you tell us what your impression of uh, those units were?
1: Specifically the, the regular units, not we'll, we'll talk about territorials at a mm, moment, Yeah, but, but mm. just the regular
0: yeah, units. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, Salute Scouts and, and obviously the Air Force. Um, I think the Air Force was probably um, the biggest uh, killer of the war. Um, uh, but particularly with the Salute Scouts who were successful in the whole fire force concept they they generated all the all the, all the contacts um, through either their pseudo operations or through ops um, so i'd say 80 percent at least of contacts um, in the war were generated or, or motivated by the salu scouts uh, so we always had an excellent relationship with them um, the SAS, uh, they were predominantly operating externally. In fact, pretty well exclusively operating ex- externally. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have that much to do with them. Um, uh, we always thought they were a bit up themselves, super troopers, as they thought. Yeah. Uh, but they were, they were brilliant, I mean, no doubt about it. But uh, they, they, as I say, externally, and it was only sort of from 78, 79, where the RLI moved on to um, almost an exclusive the external role. When I say external, is attacking camps in Mozambique or Zambia right. as opposed to handling fire force operations internally in Rhodesia. And so we would uh, hook up, work together with the SAS on a lot of these raids. Uh, for example, the first, well, well the, the one big raid, the first big RLI SAS raid, combined raid, was on Chamoyo, a camp in uh, Mozambique. Uh, between on the on the road to barra. So I'm halfway up Mozambique. And uh there there were hundred and ninety-six I think soldiers went in, of whom about half were SAS and about half were RLI. So yeah, th- th- all those big raids we worked closely with SAS, no problems, worked well together with them. And then the Rhodesian African Rifles, um Ditto, I mean, uh in the earlier days, when there was a shortage of paratroopers, uh, they just, they, they, they just weren't the facilities at the New Serum Air Base in, in, in Salisbury or Harare as it is now, to, to handle the requirements for the, the paratrooper uh, needed for the Fire Force operation So, uh, the RAR, (Rhodesian African Rifles, they had been paratrooped and so we did a lot of operations with them as well. and fine soldiers they really were good guys yeah yeah
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um on on that note you mentioned you mentioned uh chimoyo um so that's that's around the time uh you were you were working with a guy by the name of hugh mccall who um a lot of our american listeners have have probably heard of because he was uh he was a vietnam vet and you did you did it earlier when we're talking about gear you mentioned the uh the vietnam vets um. Who was Hugh McCall? Sergeant Hugh McCall.
0: Uh, Hugh McCall. Um, he wasn't actually a Vietnam vet. Um, he'd done his time in one of the airborne oh, okay. units. Oh,
1: right, uh, before, right. Before,
0: right. okay. before um, right. Vietnam. Right. Um, so I think he did three or four years, or even five years. I can't remember. In, it would have been eighty second, or I'm not sure which airborne okay. unit. I Think
1: one seventy third.
0: I remember. Yeah, that so yeah, 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 yeah. So he came to us. He'd done his time there and then then become an actor of all things hmm. in New York. Oh. Um, but, but he felt very strongly about communism mm-hmm. um, as most of the Americans who, who came out and, and fought with us right. did. And so, yeah, in 76, he came out and, and joined. Um, we thought he was incredibly old. Because he was like twenty-eight or thirty or something like that, you know. We were all eighteen-year-olds, mm-hmm. so he—he he was this granddad, as we call him, coming out and mm-hmm. We became very close friends, you know. And yeah. I, yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah. and he made he made quite the impression on you guys. He so when you met him, was he an NCO already, or was he was he a corporal, was he a surgeon No,
0: no, no. He joined a... as a, as a trooper or oh, a private really? soldier. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but he 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 was promoted pretty quickly. Uh, within a right. few months, he was he was a lance corporal, NCO, and he ended up as a sergeant. I think. Um, right. The, the the tragedy with his situation is he he married a Rhodesian girl, um, that had a baby while he was still in the army. And in '79, um, on his last day of his last tour, he got shot. He was killed killed in action, um, and he was going to be demobbing uh, the next day and taking his new family back to the States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Killed with another American, coincidentally. I don't think it was, it wasn't Elsassa I think it was Dwyer. Another American guy, yeah, they St- were both Stephen, killed in the same Stephen,
1: uh, Stephen Dyer, Dwyer. Yeah, from from Boston, I think. Yes. Um, yeah, that's him. That's yeah, him yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they're in the
0: same stick. Yeah.
1: That's right. Put, put together, yeah. And Ike, Yeah. Ike I think was killed the year earlier.
0: Yeah, he, he was killed, killed while I was still there. Yeah, I think yeah,
1: I think incidentally like on the same day. It was weird. It was like it was very similar. It was like that that's that September. That day was like a weird, it was just a, you know one of those days. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, you knew yeah, Ike yeah. as well and uh I guess we might as well talk about Ike for just a quick quick moment. Mm-hmm. Um he so we're Obviously, you're in the UK right now. You you mentioned you're in Gloss. I can't pronounce it. Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not of Anglo-Saxon descent, and I don't have a British accent. So it's much harder for me to pronounce. Um, But that being said, you're in the UK. We're in Calgary, Alberta, which is where Ike Elsasser spent a lot of time in his youth. Growing up, I think he went to high school here, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was originally from British Columbia, which is not, you know, the next province yeah. over from us. But he spent a lot of time here. He was basically here with the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, yeah, which was mm-hmm. based in our city. And incidentally, like, I paraded at the same base that he paraded out of. Like, the exact same place, you know, the old CFB Calgary grounds is where, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I worked out of. Um, and I was, I remember I was, I, I, when I read your book for the first time, well, I was in the military and looked at kind of all these stories and then, and then looked at that role of honor and going through the, through the guys in that role of honor. And, and I, I was flabbergasted. I was like, blew my mind. There was a yeah. guy from Calgary, like literally, like I was reading fire force and then like, looking through the role of honor, I think on base. And, uh, I remember like, oh my god, there was a guy from like where I'm like sitting, you know, that's, yeah. that's a small world. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. He's he was a, a lovely guy, a gentle guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it, and I, I remember um, there's a mention on the RLI Regimental Association that he he threw the rugby ball around the Canadian <laughs> the Canadian way, or, or I guess I guess American way. He, he treated it like a yeah. football. What do you guys think yeah, of that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. Pretty cool. I mean, uh, we all learned to play baseball because of the the Americans and, yeah. and, and the Canadians who were over there. Yeah. I mean, great guys. Really, really, really great guys. A lot of them. Yeah. Great guys. Yeah. And of course, there are lots of Aussies, Australians, great. and Brits. And, you know, they'd all seen action in Northern Ireland. And um, yep. so they brought all these, these skills, you know, Vietnam and Northern Ireland and Vietnam. The Aussies were all Vietnam vets in the main. Uh, so there we were, like 18, 19-year-old mm-hmm. Rhodesians, pretty green green behind the ears, um, and we're, we're meeting all these hardcore, uh, yeah, and we had um, guys from the uh, French Foreign Legion, I think at, at one stage they counted something like 17 or 18 different nationalities wow. in the RLI. Which is amazing. And that's Americans, Canadians, Aussies, Kiwis, Frenchmen from the Legion, Germans, Belgians, and of course, a lot of South Africans. Um, mm. Yeah, and quite a lot of Canadians too. Uh, uh, some really good guys. Um, I mean, some of them are, we still regard them as legendary to this day. People like Matt Lamb. Yep. Uh, amazing guy, yeah.
1: Um, so, so it's not just the, you know, the Rhodesian side, all these line units from, um, Rhodesia itself, but you, you were encountering dudes from line units and commando units and special forces, airborne, foreign legions, French and Spanish all over
0: the world. Uh, yeah, all over the world. And they all brought with them, um, their unique skills and an experience, you know? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, and, and in the main, they tended to. They really sort of blended in well, and, and we created something kind of quite special, I think. I mean, at one stage in my my troop um, or platoon, I was the only Rhodesian. The rest were all Irish. Or I mean, in my stick, I had a, an Afrikaner, a South African. Um, I had a, an Irishman, um, ex-IRA, so, you know fighting alongside Brit Paris. I mean, anathema to those guys. Wow. And and a Scotsman. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it it was was not unusual. And three commander particularly had a a very high percentage of, um, foreigners as Mm -hmm. called them. Yeah. More so than other commanders. Yeah.
1: Of course. I want to emphasize that they were all being paid Rhodesian army wages and, uh, wearing the, the Rhodesian uniform and they didn't really if they had any pretensions of being a soldier of fortune making a million bucks you know for yeah. Rhodesia, yeah. It, it wasn't happening for them it was they were army discipline and and, and all the rest uh, applied to to all
0: that i mean yeah. th- th- they like to 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 kid us and and sort of fool around that there were these um, <laughs> hardcore mercs yeah yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> They weren't. Yeah. they weren't they weren't they were just uh, professional soldiers yeah um, and as, as you say, they were getting exact same pay as we were um exact same terms and conditions the only difference is they got a free free flight in and a free flight out yeah <laughs>
1: probably not thanks, bye. The, 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 thanks bye yeah
0: well, often off, off on a body bag you know
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's not a wasn't a extremely appealing deal to them a a, a lot of them had had different motivations uh in in the in the in the unit lines itself you had this like weird just because it was very cosmopolitan you had well i think we can mention him there was a certain brit that you mentioned well, you can name him if you want. He's in the book. Um, he, he liked to not wear clothes and...
2: Uh, <laughs> do certain activities, do certain in, front activities in front of others. and Soldiers.
1: And then you had some more conservative yeah. guys that were very anti-communist. And then you had some of your British uh, pommies who yep. were a little more liberal in their... I guess their, um, their motivations in, in coming to Rhodesia for, uh, let's say, female relations.
2: Oh, oh, yes. The guy who uh, wanted a black girlfriend. The yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Was a that? lot of that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, with the, you with... know, particularly in, in a racial conscious sort of country like, mm-hmm. like Rhodesia and uh, a lot of these foreigners um, came out for the black women um, and that created all sorts of nightmares for the, <laughs> for the officers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That that must have been interesting. Like like uh, yeah, like we said in the beginning, it was like it was kind of like two worlds, just yeah. constantly. It was. You know. It
0: was. And I mean, you know, as I say here, I was this wet behind the ears yeah. little uh, Rhodesian eighteen year old, and thrown in with these guys um, who'd been in Vietnam or Belfast or wherever they'd been, and um, partying and living it up with these these black <laughs> men, and yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it really was sort of I. Yeah, you grew up quickly
1: yeah that's 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 wild mm-hmm. yeah. um I, there's there's a there's another unit another line unit we gotta mention uh, that you you specifically mentioned them you know there's there's a long excerpt when you're talking about the incident with uh Trevor Trevor Schultz when he's wounded um but I like yeah. to ask about this yeah. this specific unit the Rhodesian African rifles um and and just your yeah any interactions you had with them what was that like
0: yeah yeah brilliant i mean as as i mentioned earlier we we did joint fire force operations with them when we didn't have enough paratroopers of our own so we would um some rar people um and it would generally be one rhodesian rli stick working together with one rar stick and uh, when trevor schultz my friend got shot and the RLI stick was behind us. And they were big guys, you know, and um, Schultz got shot in the head. Uh, I was you know, as a trained medic as well. And I just couldn't get a, a drip into him, his, his veins had collapsed completely. And so I told uh, told the officer, Gordon Thornton, I said, we we got to get him out of here, we got to try and get a get a helicopter in here to take him away. But we were in this thick, they call it Jesse Bush, which is thick, thick thorn bush, and everything, they're, they're long tentacle type branches uh, that sort of hook onto anything and everything. And we were in this kind of bush, we'd finished our contact, we'd kill the I think it were two, uh, two gorillas. Uh, we'd killed um, the MAG dispatched them. Um, but we had Schultz and, and carrying a, a, a human body is heavy, especially um, you know, Schultz to be shot. So, you know, he wasn't um, rigid. Um, and we were in this thick, thick Jesse bush and this uh, RAR sergeant sent his his two riflemen forward and they just grabbed Trevor and just hooked him up and just got him out of there. Just amazing people. Just unbelievably strong um, how they, they got him out of there. Yeah, good guys, good guys.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, for for those that haven't read the book, well, at least in the in the fourth edition, um, there's a there's a pretty the the illustration there is pretty dramatic. That was uh, that that was probably like the you know one of the moments in the book that that really got to me when you when you described that that whole incident and um,
2: very intense.
1: It was very intense. Yeah, it, was, it was just yeah. one of the uh, it, yeah, yeah. It, it it spoke volumes about what kind of men uh, that the misogy of, of the RAR were for sure um, that they're, they're willing to do that. The, the way you described yeah, it, sure. it, it was, um,
0: for sure. It was a for hairy, sure. it
1: was a hairy moment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, 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 no hesitation. They're just like, yep, roger that. And um, they, they got your buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Trev, yeah. Trev, you know, in many ways, and obviously because of, because of your actions and the, you know, the, you mentioned another RLI medic, um being involved in that like he said he actually survived and it was it was a pretty grievous wound but he got him out of there you know within that golden hour and i don't know if i don't know if you guys got him out of there in the hour but uh he got him out of there pretty quick yeah i think we did yeah and he survived yeah Uh, and
0: he was flown straight from there he survived yeah um he ended up with a sort of steel. i mean he must have um, by the time we got him there, half his head, uh, his brains were, were falling out. Um, it was too awful. Uh, and we managed to get him out of there. And as you say, the the medic who was on the Pete Lee, um, yep. to get, I don't know how many drips he got him, but there were several. And uh, at the same time, he's having to wipe the the air turbulence in the helicopter was just, the the whole place was like a, house. I mean, blood everywhere and um, Pete Lead, at the same time I was trying to look after Trevor was having to wipe the windscreen so the helicopter pilot could see where he was going. Mm. But um, they managed to get him to Antali Hospital which was about 40, 40 minutes away uh, and from there through to Andrew Fleming Hospital in Salisbury where he recovered. It took many, many years. He recovered. Um, he was never right. I mean, um, he, never, he, he was pretty well crippled in, on on his whole um, right side, I think, um, from, from the brand damage. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, he, he lived, um, he actually died about, uh, five years ago. Yeah. 20, 20, I, was, I was, 20, Yeah. Yeah. Six years ago. I was a pallbearer at his, yeah. at his funeral. And then the other sad cases, The the one guy also in our stick that day, Chris Bernard, mm-hmm. um, he died uh, three or four years ago at a hospital in um, Texas. Mm. Goodness now how he ended up there, but yeah, he was he was pretty sick. Yeah. So they've all gone. They're all going. Yeah, a lot of them have have, have gone by the wayside. It's
2: one, uh, one, not quite a unit, I guess, but certainly something that I noticed a lot in the book that you mention a number of times is the territorials. And yes. I was a bit confused to who the territorials are. Like, were they the version of the Rhodesian National Guard or militia? Or
1: yeah, well, there's a bunch of units too. So that's, yeah, that's I was always... Conf-
2: confused yeah. about sort
1: of
0: their role. Uh,
2: so yeah,
0: okay, okay, yeah, um, yeah, that, that equivalent of, of the American National Guard, I think, um, effectively reserves uh, reservists. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, when you finished your schooling, you were then sent to do your national service. And uh, unless, the, the, like the few of us who got sent to the regular units, like the um, BSAP or the, or the Rhodesian Light Infantry, most uh, people went, or guys went off to what's known as the Rhodesia Regiment, and that was very much a territorial unit, it was not a regular unit. Um, a lot of the, the senior NCOs and officers were regulars, um, a lot of them were RLI actually, um, but they were a territorial unit, a uh, reserve unit. And so after you'd done your national service in what in the territorial units, independent companies, there was particularly national service companies, and they had one, one in depth, two in depth, all the way up. You did your time, your year or 18 months, national service, or two years it got to be later, uh, in the ind- independent company as a full-time national serviceman. And then you were um, uh, allocated uh, a, a territorial battalion, which you did your call-ups to. So you did six weeks, it became six weeks in, and six weeks off later in the war. So you were six weeks in the army, six weeks as a civilian. So those were the territorials, yeah. yeah. And they varied considerably in, in quality, um, obviously. Um, some of them were of the highest caliber, particularly some of the tracking units like fourth battalion, um, there were something like 10 battalions, um, of, in the Rhodesia regiment, um, based geographically. So, um, depending, you know, everyone from Guelo would join 10th bat, for example, everyone in abtali would join fourth, fourth bat for, for Rhodesia regiment. Yeah, so they were territorials and um, hopelessly undermanned. Um, uh, little, uh, a lot of them had very little motivation. They were there because they had to be. They were really, you know, civilians who 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 had to go and fight a war that they didn't want to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they did okay. They did okay.
1: Speaking of. Um... National servicemen and territorials. Your national service does eventually come to an end with the Rhodesian Light Infantry. I think it, it was a it was full two years, uh, give or
0: take. No, when when I was conscripted, it was for a twelve month twelve months period. Okay. Yep. Uh, but a few months into that, the national service period was increased to eighteen months. Right. Uh, and the following year was increased to two years. But when they increased it to eighteen months. I thought well I may as well sign on for a three-year contract oh, okay as, as a regular yeah and, and get paid for it
1: right Yeah. and um, you what what year did you finally get out of three uh, or, or uh, RLI then that would, would have been um,
0: uh, February 79
1: right and um, obviously at that stage the country's still at war there, there was a certain turning point in that war around that time, the, the attack on, uh, the oil, I think it was the oil storage facility or uh, oil yeah. depot in Salisbury. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that was 79. If I remember correctly, or 70, 78, 79, late 78. Yeah. Late that 78. was very
0: much a, a watershed moment in, in far of the walk. I mean, that, I think the country after that, uh, I mean, it was an amazing raid, uh, by Zanla. Mm-hmm. After that, the country was down to like two weeks mm-hmm. fuel, fuel supply yeah. after that. Yeah. They- so I mean, the, the pressure was just mounting steadily all the time. So from, you know, a few hundred quarters um, and 68, 10 years later, we, we were looking at insurgencies of, uh, I mean, we, we were flying out to contacts of gangs of 100 or more. Um, at any one time and it was just incessant it was just relentless you know, you, you sometimes have two contacts a day, sometimes more um, so just flying from one contact to the next um, every day and eventually, you know it, it took its toll um, so yeah 79 became the kind of um, the make or break part of the war uh, the Rhodesians were starting were, had started the external raids um, into Zambia and Mozambique, but uh, they, they weren't doing enough in terms of stemming the flow of, of guerrillas. And I I don't know the numbers exactly, but I mean by the time the ceasefire occurred in December 79, there was apparently something like uh, 40,000 Zanla guerrillas in the country. Not to mention Zipra, that was the... Um, and Como's crowd in Zambia. I mean, they had uh, several thousand, but most of theirs were still in Zambia. So, you know, the Rhodesians were on a hiding to nothing, you know, apart from sanctions, uh, diminishing manpower reserves because mm-hmm. uh, th- th- these civilians, these territorials, most of them are now leaving the country. Um, so, yeah, I, it was just going nowhere. And that's why the Rhodesians were forced to the negotiating table.
1: Uh, That period, um, let's call it the end, like literally the the end of this war, February to to December, uh, the attack had happened at the Salisbury uh, Oil Depot. You actually still stayed in kind of the Rhodesian security forces in a way. You you remuster, from my understanding, to Patu. Now, just just to caveat this, you have... A sequel to Fire Force, which unfortunately I've not been able to get my hands on a copy of uh, Out of Action, which is the first book. And um, and now you've written another one. Um, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, newly published uh, Survival Course, which talks about
0: the end. The survival Course is was the original name of Out of Action. Roger that. Um, so it was originally survival course and then I changed it, I don't know why, out of action, but it's survival mm-hmm. course, that's what it's known as now. Okay. Yeah, and that that, that documents my time from um, February 79, end mm-hmm. of my time in RLI, to serving as a reservist, a field reservist, um, with uh, the BSAP um, Police Anti-Terrorist mm-hmm. Unit, which was a counterinsurgency insurgency uh, unit. Um, not 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 regular at all and i did that till uh independence zimbabwe independence april 1980
1: yeah that that was um relatively brief time but at that stage what was especially now just going over to the bsap side what was the morale like what was what was the mindset like um because you know the the writing was on the wall at this stage
0: very much so very yeah. much so. Um, I mean, even the politicians, the white politicians, were starting to leave. Um, well, that's <laughs> a that's, a bad, get, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a bad sign. Yeah, they were getting sign. all their money out. Yeah, and they were okay. Uh, <clears throat> the BSAP, well, I was stuck in um, the back end of beyond a little farming area, so I never had very much contact contact with the actual regular police force. Um, we had a sort of a handler, if you were. Mm-hmm. For, uh, ground coverage regular policemen who would um, deploy, deploy us. But we, I was working in a farming area. Uh, I was doing a farming job, actually. Um, and so me and all, of, all the farmers in the area were part of either the um, Two Police anti terrorist Unit. Um, I was a stick leader there because of my experience with RMI. Or they were part of the police reserve, And they were sort of the older guys, and they they sort of handled convoy duties, uh, guard operations, that sort of thing. So um, I didn't have a lot to do with the the police themselves. But, I mean, they're a pretty professional police force, but they were never quite sure of what their their real role was. Were they uh, paramilitary or were they policemen? Mm -hmm. Um, And they they never quite got to grips with what they were. Uh, uh, There was a lot of inter-service rivalry between the police and the army, and particularly in terms of um, intelligence. Yep. Um, and the, the police believed they had, uh, that was their domain, intelligence. Um, they did a fantastic job, um, and the, the, the army didn't do such a good job. So um, there was a certain amount of rivalry, but um, yeah, they were, they were a, a good force. They really were. But as I say, they, they weren't a military force, although they did conduct military operations. Like partu, for example, which mm-hmm. um, was like being on fire force, but without the air support. Um, pretty hairy stuff. But you know, you had—I think I had five or six men in in my stick. Um, and you get a call one night at like eight o'clock, and there's been a attack on one of the, the farm compounds, or there's been a attack on a farm store. You have to react to that, and uh, so you get your eight guys. Some of them are quite old. Um, I mean, one of my guys was well into his forties, had asthma, but you worked with what you had. And, um,
1: wow. how old, you know, how, you go. How old were you at this point? Uh,
0: I, I was now. all of 21. <laughs> yeah. Trying I, to I was a...
1: tell a 40 year old man.
0: No, but they, they listened because, you know, I'd, I'd been there. I'd done right. the, the whole RLI thing and, right. um, they, they weren't soldiers. You know, they were just uh, sort of old guys who had been given a rifle. They could shoot straight, which was good, and they listened, and they they were really good. But um, we didn't have helicopters to support us. So, right. you know, I remember one stage we um, did a follow-up. We um, chased this gang. There must have been, I don't know, 50 of them, and there were five of us, uh, and they were... We were, we were waiting for us. They ambushed us from a ridge and they let everything fly at us, you know, RPG 7s. and But they initiated far too early, so we were pretty safe. But there were no um, helicopters to fly in and help us. So we had to sort it out ourselves. Run away, basically. Oh.
1: It, it, You know, it's a, it's a stark contrast from Op Cauldron, for sure, uh, by the end. Yeah. Stark yeah. contrast. It's almost the reverse of, of what's going on. Yeah, um, you're,
0: very much so. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, and you're, you're there, Independence. How long do you stick around before... Basically, I understand. And, and we'll have to get into Survival Course. I really hope we have the opportunity to chat again about Survival Course um we're out of action again it's it's in print now a survival course you might still see some out of action books out there i have seen them
0: there are a few lying yeah. around here. The yeah the survival course i I rewrote the whole thing um yeah, yeah did it properly
1: so yeah we'll um we we've definitely got a chat about that but uh eventually ceasefire is declared and you you find your way you know, in, in South Africa, eventually, and and kind of all over, for quite a few years. Um, you know, we can we can talk about some of the obviously there's a very poignant intro introduction in the book where you're talking about yourself in the mid '80s in South Africa, talking to I believe it's a psychiatrist. Um, but before before that's that's all happening, did you stick around with the new? Zimbabwean police or did you just did you just bug no,
0: out no um, no I just sort of uh, left handed in my uh, my weapon mm-hmm. um, and all, all my my weapons yep and became a civilian you know that that was it overnight um, yep uh, and thought well now what you know I got married yep. typical war marriage I got married when I was 20 um uh didn't last. It lasted quite a long time. But um, like all those kind of war marriages, it just kind of fell apart. But so I'd got married when I was 20. I'd forsaken any opportunity I'd had of going to university. Um, So Here I was uh, in a country which I didn't really feel like was my country anymore. uh, Zimbabwe and um, because of the war, uh, because of everything that had gone back gone before. the the economy crashed, basically. Um, To find work was very difficult, but I sort of hung out in Zimbabwe, made my own way for 15-odd years, and um, uh, it was in the sort of mid-90s, and I could see the writing on the wall in terms of Mugabe um, going to do what he was going to do, taking the country down a fairly horrendous path. Uh, So I moved to South Africa in ninety six. Yeah, I was there 20 years and then came to UK in 2015.
1: Uh, sorry. I think I made a, just a correction from earlier beginning of fire force. Uh, you are, you're actually in Harare at that stage. Uh, you said 30, 30 Correct. June, 1986. So you're, you you do yeah. spend a, a lot of time in, in Zim. Um, yeah, and you know, you, you obviously saw a lot of dramatic changes in that country. Uh, and what, you know, not an easy time. Um, I'm sure from a lot of people that I've interacted with from, honestly, every conflict, I know exactly what you mean by, by war marriage. You hear these stories yeah. from war brides going back to the ne- Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. The same thing happening. Yeah.
0: It's a universal story, it's, isn't it? It's,
1: yeah. I'm sure if we yeah. were to get a time machine, there'd be a Roman legionnaire. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) from the, you know, first century AD going like, you know what, Chris, I know, I know what you went through, right? (laughs) I was in Gaul or whatever. And (laughs) you know, it is what it is. Um, wasn't, it it doesn't sound like an easy time because at this stage, a a lot of your colleagues, even in the mid eighties, 1986, when you, um, when you're sitting there in that psychiatrist office where fire force begins it's a prologue. You're colleagues, friends, comrades in arms, partners in crime, they, they're all starting to like, like die, like pass away. Um, in in you know, accidents, suicides.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or I think, I think a lot of parallels there in, in the sort of years immediately after, after the war, there were quite a lot of suicides, uh, Mm -hmm. with, with my, with my uh, contemporaries, um, Lots, lots, and there were a lot of needless deaths, Um, you know, people drinking themselves to death, drowning in their vomit, Um, motorbike, I mean, Maurice Mare, for example, that MAG gunner, he was killed in a motorbike accident two years after the war. Um, You know, a lot of them died um, recklessly, Mm -hmm. Um, like like almost like a death wish, almost. Um, And then, as I say, a lot of suicides. So it was a fairly hectic period those few years after the war. Um, but it didn't stop there. Um, they've been, since then, there've been quite a few suicides too. And, uh, yeah, it, it had a massive impact, massive.
1: And was it in a way, was it also not, obviously combat for a lot of people is traumatic seeing death or injury or what, what have you, right? It, it, honestly, it could just be. It could be anything. Could be could can be yeah. traumatic. Yeah. But was there a culture mm. in the? Because you mentioned there was a there was a, a bit of drug use going on, um, when you made it to the commando unit, and obviously there's a lot of partying and alcohol and. Yeah. Was
0: yeah, it yeah, was
1: yeah, it just yeah, like yeah. a continuation of that bravado?
0: I think there's in, a, a in lot culture. of that as well. Yeah, a lot of that as well. And I think um, any soldier. Uh, any soldier who's, um, it doesn't even have to be in a war, but any soldier who's particularly fought in a war, um, when you're demobbed and you become a civilian, everything changes, everything. And yeah. um, you struggle to find your place in the world. Um, I mean, if I look back on my time, um, I, I mean, I re- recall a particular instance where my life, I've never been as on top of my game at that particular moment. I was everything that I wanted to be and was. Um, and I was 20 or 21. Um, I've never, never had that um, feeling or that um, epiphany, as it were, again, that here I was doing something extremely well, I believed, uh, and that I was really good at and I getting a massive kick out of it. It really was the adrenaline of the whole thing. And then you become a civilian and y- y- you just cannot adapt. You struggle to adapt. Um, you've been programmed to become this um, killing machine, but you're never deprogrammed. You're never, you're never decompressed um, to come out of that, and um, which is why you get all the suicides and why you get all the... Um, all the violence, you know, after the war, after a war, Chris, uh, and and of course the yeah the drugs and the alcohol, yeah,
2: Chris. Do you think that part of the, an especial trauma and struggle for Rhodesian vets would be the fact that, as well as going through all the war, going through, being basically on the the losing side, not to put too fine a point on it. And yeah. watching everything change. Do you think that certainly contributed to some people's, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder? Or...
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, the guys in Vietnam, um, they, they, they still had a home to go back to.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they went home. Um, everyone went home. The Rhodesians lost their home. We lost our home, Rhodesia. I mean, we became Zimbabwean, we became Zimbabwean citizens, but uh, we'd, we lost our country. And um, it was never, never going to be the same again after that. And um, we would now, we weren't special anymore. We were just old white men, you know, kind of. Living in an African country or older, I mean, you know, as we grew older. So that, I think that had a huge impact on a lot of people. There was just no sense of belonging, no, no, we um, just lost. And that's why the, it's um, particularly the Rhodesian diaspora that it, it's around the world. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, Rhodesian, um, US, Canada, Australia, particularly New Zealand, South Africa, UK, everywhere, everywhere, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, for for 15 years, more or less, you're mulling about and um, hard to find work and stuff, de- dealing with uh, your own traumatic experiences and, and your buddies having substance abuse issues and also dealing with traumatic experiences, losing many, many friends during this period. Um, and eventually, you do make the decision to to, you know, write down your experiences in, in Fire Force, which, which now I think in, in many ways has become kind of the book for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm, um, very much so. It certainly was for me when I, because my, my understanding was very, very vague, uh, almost, yeah. almost Soldier of Fortune inspired, 80s magazines inspired. And I didn't yeah like Fire yeah. Force was a wake up call for what what this war really was, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the wild geese, you know, it wasn't, um, no. it wasn't Hollywood. It no. was, it was a real, it was comp, yeah. it was complex, and it was hairy, and yeah. uh, and that's that's why, you know, there there was no, pardon, pardon the expression, there was no black and white in this war. There was mm-hmm. endless, no, endless ambiguities and enigmas and and contradictions and and yeah. And dichotomies in yep. this war and you decide that's at some point here to uh uh pan these experiences down into a book uh, do, you, do you remember what year the, the first uh i think it's
0: i do it summer i started uh writing down a few thoughts i don't know why but probably around 87 1987 and you know, it was I'd been through all this, and I was trying to make sense of it all, and I, I didn't understand, but I started, I had a need to write down, and um, particularly some of the contacts that I'd been in, uh, not out of any kind of um, glorifying war or anything like that. It was just simply to uh, record um, what I'd been through, and as I said, I don't know why, and I ended up because uh, I felt it had to count for something, um, and I ended up with a whole lot of uh, little vignettes, I suppose, uh, little little stories. Um, and I thought, well, hang on, if I join these all together, maybe there's a b- book in there. Uh, so I, I did that, and and I, I wrote the whole thing um, on an old typewriter uh, in about six months and i thought well now what do i do now what do i do with it and um, so i had the the whole thing as i say printed out my old typewriter and got photocopies done and made up um, sent them to various publishers around the world would you be interested and all of them came back and said no interest at all um you know, t- too recent to be of any historical value. That was what one said, and basically it was Rhodesia. You know, you guys lost. Get over it. Um, not not of interest at all. Um, so I then. Um, I mean, some of them are really quite nasty. Some of some some of the um, the replies I got. Um, I then sent off to, there was a well quite a well-known publisher in South Africa, a guy called Peter Stiff. Um, he'd published a lot of, on Rhodesia up until that time, even during the war. He'd made a lot of money publishing books on the war. Um, and he'd done the book on the Salus Scouts history, which had sold 90,000 copies. I mean, it was a big deal. So I sent the book off to him in 1988. And he came back and said, I'd love to publish it. Uh so he did. He published it. He I don't know, he he, he printed about ten thousand copies. And then in nineteen eighty-nine he went bust. Uh he and Ronry Daly, the Seleuce Scout guy, uh had a big fallout over the the copyright of the Saleu Scouts book and whatever and stiff Bit of stuff went bust, and uh, so uh, Fire Force in its first original um, edition was stopped, and uh, you know it was it was pulled. Um, I got I got no royalties, nothing, um, and the only good thing out of the whole thing was that the rights uh, reverted to me as the author. So when I moved to, um, South Africa in 96, um, I'd been down there about a, a year when I, I lost my job. Um, and I thought, well, I've got to do something. So I thought, I knew there was still a demand for, for Fire Force. So I thought I'd rewrite it the way I wanted it written and I'd publish it myself, which I did. Um, I learned the ropes, the long, hard way of writing a book and publishing it. And, uh, yeah, so that was 97. I I republished it. And since then, it's gone into various editions. Um, I think it's now in the fifth fifth edition. Uh, Various other publishers have got involved. For example, Paladin Press in the U.S. did did an edition. Um, And it sort of ticks over. Uh, Yeah, it's been... Eighty-eight. That's thirty years. It's it's pretty well been in print most of the time, apart from a few years in between. Yeah.
1: Right. Uh, what was um, the f- reaction when it was uh, published? That second edition, basically your edition. That, that you know you you had fully had the rights to the book now, um, doing it your own way. What was the reaction from publishers, from veterans, from bookstores? I know you had some interesting dealings with certain bookstores early on, um, when you, when you're trying to get it out, Uh, self-publishing.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, Rhodesia had, you know, you're Rhodesian, you had a reputation. You were, you regarded as a right-wing racist basically. Um, so I think there was a stigma attached to, to being a, a Rhodesian veteran. Um, they didn't, a lot of the Rhodesians didn't help themselves in any particular way. Um, a lot of them were very gung ho mm-hmm. kind of but Peter Stiff being one, for example. Right, about yeah. how the Rhodesians were these super soldiers and they could do no wrong. Mm. Um, and I think where my book um, made impact was that it was just absolutely honest, totally yep. honest. Um, and and that's the only difference. Um, it, it's not it's not war stories. It's not glorifying war. It's uh, it's just telling a story of. Um, me, a little old white boy being in the wrong country, at the wrong time, and getting involved in this war and, you know, what it meant for, for me and my, my generation, and um, how this, this little conflict um, meant so much to so many people. But today, it's, uh, well, it was just that, it was a little conflict that, you know, fought in the African bush, Uh, Only 50,000 people died, so it's not really neither here nor there in terms of as wars go. Um, But there were a lot of lessons to be learned from that war and um, hopefully have been learned. But, yeah, I think that was the the story of success of my book was because of the honesty, Um, brutal honesty. Mm -hmm. I I didn't skimp on anything, Uh, yeah.
2: Speaking of uh, lessons, do you think that the experience of the Rhodesian soldier is in any way similar to soldiers in more recent conflicts in, for example, Afghanistan or Iraq? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um,
0: obviously, the technology and, uh, has changed enormously. I mean, in, in the earlier days of our war, we went into action in um, shorts and a T-shirt and trainers you know, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nowadays, these guys are going in with metal jackets and, you know, there are things like uh, rules of engagement, which I've never heard of until the movie came out. You know, we didn't have those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So the technology and obviously things have changed a lot. Um, We didn't have cell phones. I mean, amazing if we'd had those, just basic things like that. But in terms of the tactics involved. I think there are. I mean, fire force as a military tactic um, is nothing new. It's really a vertical envelopment, total envelopment of the enemy. Um, and that happens today in, let's um, like Afghanistan. Um, we just had to make do with a whole lot of substandard material. That's why we became paratroopers, because mm. we didn't have enough helicopters. But the, the basic principles are the same. And um, yeah, I think there, there are lessons to be learned in terms of that. The other aspect that, uh, funny enough, that the Rhodesians were very innovative, and world leaders at the time were in um, mine-proofing, mine-resistant vehicles. That's right. Uh, um, and that's Rhodesians developed in conjunction with the South Africans. Um, And, I mean, a lot of the South African vehicles today are are top mine-proof, mine-resistant and ambush vehicles uh, around the world. Um, You know, the V-shaped hull, for example, Um, all that kind of stuff. You know, that all originated in Rhodesia um, because, as I mentioned earlier, the landmine very soon became the guerrilla's weapon of choice, and it was deadly
1: it's funny because um that especially the v v-shaped hull thing i remember when i was being investigated for as you said being a right-wing racist by the canadian military um i mentioned during my summary investigation and it must be somewhere in the documents because the whole you know the whole interaction i had was recorded but i i mentioned the v-shaped hull and this extremely extremely educated officer who i will not name had no idea it came from rhodesia he was like what no that's that's you're lying that's that's bs and i'm like oh well well, sir with all due respect you can look it up like the the reason i'm interested in not only in terms of um the stories themselves but the equipments and the and and the tactics and stuff because obviously the stories resonate with me because they're they're very fascinating, as we talked about with all the, all the dichotomies that existed within Rhodesia. But in terms of the military tactics, when I was a soldier, and honestly for all soldiers, whether they be in a service support trade, uh, you know, combat service support or combat arms, doesn't matter. Because you guys worked with nothing, more or less, like shoestring budget, yeah. um, surrounded from all sides. Against a very very determined enemy, ide that was ideological, very very ideologically motivated, and kind of similar to what what you know we deal with in today's insurgencies. You know that's that's what modern warfare has turned into these very very mo- relatively small groups of very very motivated people that um, are willing to stop at nothing to. Yeah. achieve their political aim and how to you know how to police that so i looking at that example tactics like the fire force you know v-shaped halls um doing things as cheaply as possible as you guys did uh was it was, was very interesting to study And any any anybody in a military context should see the value in it um but yeah this guy this guy had no clue he had no clue that yeah um, he, he it, it didn't it didn't Clue in with them that, like, you know, all those lives saved when we put V shaped hulls in the bottom of our labs in Afghanistan when we were there until 2013, um, that came from Rhodesia, right? Yeah. Like there's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's no disputing that.
0: No, there isn't. And I mean, some of the weapon systems that were um, uh, developed in Rhodesia are amazing things that, uh, I mean, we had one, uh, things like the bouncing bomb. Yep. I don't know if you yep. guys have yeah, heard yeah, of that. 500-kilogram yeah, yeah. yeah, bomb. bomb that bounces up to 8 or 10 feet and then explodes. Um, I mean, horrible things. And then we had the flechette. You might have heard of that.
1: Yes. Uh, those are you the, know the, those are actually uh, banned in Canada. You can't own an individual flechette. They're, cause yeah, they're, yeah. they're like totally prohibited. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I mean, uh, the Rhodesians actually banned it themselves. <laughs> because it was such a dreadful yeah. weapon um, yeah. and they're a bit scared of, you know, I don't know why, but the Geneva Convention, all that thing. Yeah. Sort of thing, you know, just not cricket, Yeah, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so some of the weapon systems and then obviously uh, napalm was very much integral part of um, fire force and some of the napalm dispensing systems that they developed were fairly revolutionary at the time. Um, phosphorus, all those sort of lovely things.
1: Yeah, it's just um, it's just basically uh, what is it, five, like 14, 14, or sorry, nineteen years, I think. The whole UDI said seventy nine, that was a period of what was it five, yeah for fourteen years. It was just fourteen years. All this in in the middle of, of Southern Africa, all this was going yeah. on. All this development yeah. that has, in many ways, continued to be developed on. Right. And it, was, it, was, it Was this yeah. conflict? With all this being said. Obviously, we're, we're chatting from across oceans. You're in the U.K. now uh, since, you know, for the past few years. Um, you're now married again, hanging out in the U.K. You mentioned uh, with COVID that you've been doing a little bit of homeschooling, which which I imagine is a far cry from being a stick uh, stick commander, like stick, a stick troop leader or whatever. A troopy, yeah. let's call it a troopy in the RLI, okay? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you're you're doing homeschooling now with COVID, and you're fighting different battles today. Uh, what 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 have you been up to uh, recently uh, in the UK? Um, you know, publishing your books and.
0: Well, yeah, as I mentioned, when when I first published Far Force, that kind of got me into the publishing game because yeah. uh, I suddenly found that a whole lot of other authors. Um, approached me, um, who'd fought in the Su- South African border war, particularly. Mm. And because of the um, political dispensation in South Africa at the time in the late 90s, when the ANC had come to power and apartheid had collapsed. Um, again, um, white supremacy was an issue. Mm. Uh, uh, and so a lot of these guys had some good stories to tell. I mean, uh, uh, very different from our little Rhodesian Bush War, but the South African border war was, was huge in yep. comparison. So I suddenly found myself, I thought, well, I've got a business here. Um, these guys are writing all their books. So I started a publishing operation. And I've essentially been in, in publishing or thereabouts since then. I'm either involved in my own publishing operation or uh, working as an editor um uh, project manager for various other publishers. Um, recently, um, my wife and I, um, I've worked with her before in, in publishing business, set up a little operation um, called Lime Tree Press in the UK um, as a sort of uh, online publisher. And we're starting to, so it's brand new, and it only started in December last year. And we're starting to look at uh, developing manuscripts and nonfiction. Books, yeah. So that's all sort of happening. So it's still very new, as I say. Um, and then getting my, my other books out there, um, Survival Course, Fire Force, and there's a, a CD novel I wrote, getting those publicized. Um, yep, that's that's what it's all about at the moment.
1: And uh, you, are, you are raising a family right now, um, as I mentioned.
0: Yeah, the... my wife and I, um, in, in South Africa, we adopted uh two kids um and brought them over to the uk so yeah it's, you know at my, my age mm-hmm. uh, dad dad second time around you know i had i've had kids from previous marriages so um hopefully i'll get it right this time
1: <laughs> and you're and i'm sure they're at home right now because of covid you're uh probably around the corner uh you're um how how's that uh, how's this experience been um, with, with, uh, with COVID and just, uh, you know, being
0: very difficult, uh, very difficult. I think it's a challenge and, um, for everybody. Yeah. You know, they have gone back to school now. They went back a week ago.
1: Okay. That's good. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: But really tough.
2: Really it's tough. It's been a long, as you said,
0: your different skills from being a trooper. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I also do write a bit of fiction by myself as a hobby. I self-publish on Amazon, just short fiction stories, completely, uh, yeah. completely fictional. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the CD novel you wrote? Because I was a bit interested in that. Yeah,
0: it's a novel. It's it's a novel called Deslocado Redemption, uh, and it's. Um, in some respects, it, it's a semi-autobiographical, but it's dealing with the fallout of the Rhodesian War, um, at the same time dealing dealing with the fallout of the Civil War in Mozambique, which finished in the mid to late 90s, and how the two scenarios collide. Uh, southern and southeastern Africa had been through massive upheaval. Um, It's based on an interracial relationship uh, and all the dynamics involved in that relationship in the region Uh, in Zimbabwe. The action takes place in Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and Zambia, which were all the old battlegrounds of the Rhodesian War. And obviously, in some respects, the Mozambican Civil War, which was an a nasty war that went on for many, many years. Um, at the same time, dealing with uh, deslocado, it's Portuguese for effectively meaning dislocated or uh, basically a refugee. So it's um, a story of redemption from d- uh, dislocated people in s- southwest, southeastern Africa.
2: Um, how can people support you and your books, Chris?
0: Well, if they could sign up on Lime Tree Press, which is www.limetreepress.com and have a look around there. But uh, we are looking for nonfiction manuscripts. Um, and, of course, buying the book and leaving various uh, reviews, things like that, um, following Lime Lime Tree Press on Facebook, Instagram, etc. Um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah.
1: And uh, we'll we'll be sure to um, give Lime Tree a plug when this is, comes out. And definitely when this podcast is released, you can pick up Chris's book at www.fireforceventures.com, which is my, my company website. Uh, we'll link it there as well on the Men Among
2: Men stories com website as well
0: mm-hmm. fantastic thank you
2: yeah i'd like to just finish uh chris with uh, a quote that you included in the end of your book it's by major general mcintyre for my yep. bet is that history will say the rli troopy was the equal if not the peer of the british para the american marine the german storm trooper, or napoleon's imperial guard do you think that even though you guys weren't super soldiers as you mentioned that that is a fair assessment of the the RLI
0: well uh heady stuff um yeah I I guess in some ways uh that that, that's uh, there's possibly an element of truth in that all at the time you know we didn't think we were kind of Anything special? We were too busy keeping our heads heads down to to worry about any kind of glory. But, I yeah, I do I do think that there's an element of of veracity in that. I mean, um, we we were around for such a short time, um, but I think we made a fairly large impact on um, military on on warfare in in our own little way. But yeah, I mean, it, it's. It's nice to have those kind of accolades, um, obviously, but yeah, you know, I mean, I won't say that true, <laughs> but I- I- interesting coming from a guy like McIntyre who was, I think, head of the army at one stage. Yeah.
1: Well, with that being said, uh, might I say it has been an absolute honor chatting with you. Your stories, your experiences were definitely what. Inspired me, um, to look into this history and come to understand it. I personally never thought I'd actually get the chance to uh, chat and meet with you, so it is it is a distinct honor. I'm sure a lot of a lot of my fellow colleagues that have served or formerly served with me are very very jealous right now. <laughs> we're chatting. Uh, it's it's a huge honor, man. There are probably hundreds and. Maybe millions of fans out there of your work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's touched a lot of people. So again, um, got to emphasize huge honor talking to you. A lot of jealous people right now on my road. Wow! I I
0: know. I feel very humbled, but um, no, thank you very much.
2: All right. Well, yeah. It's it's been an honor. Yes, it has indeed been an honor, Chris. Hopefully, maybe one day we'll be able to meet and have a chibouli in person. Yeah.
0: <laughs> goodness I haven't heard that word for a long time
2: no. <laughs> I had to bring it up yeah yeah,
0: brilliant, brilliant. R- Roger brilliant. that so uh, yeah
1: we'll, thank you we'll, we'll have to we'll have to chat soon again man thank you brilliant with that Mr. Chris Cox has left the studio so it's just us now Bindu yep what do you think
2: I think it was really good it was good to hear Straight from the the lion's mouth, as it were.
1: Yeah, uh, amazing that the dude did all this stuff when he was like eighteen, younger than both of us. Yeah, and he was already out of the war by the time he was younger than both of us. Kind of commanding a stick in the BSAP, mm-hmm. you know, veteran RLI commander at that stage. So incredible story, incredible life story, and um, you know, obviously he's well, he's doing better now. We knew he was dealing with um, COVID homeschooling, which was a far cry from the life of a three-commando troopie, but despite inhabiting a different, very different world now, a lot of what he talks about is still relevant, I think, in terms of coming to terms with trauma, dealing with loss in more ways than one throughout his life, and dealing with, I guess, adversity, the same adversity this experience of soldiers dating back to the Roman Empire, to the, to, you know, King Solomon, antiquity, whatever you, what have you, right? Like it, it's just like universal experience he has of, of the soldier. And I think that's oftentimes lost when we are thinking about this Rhodesian Bush War conflict. These guys were not super soldiers, as he says; they were ordinary, ordinary men.
2: Some would even say men among men.
1: Some would say men among men in extraordinary times. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was just chance. He's put into three commando largely because of chance. He serves that. Well, first off, he's in the RLI because of chance. And then three commando because of chance. And then eventually the BSAP Patu because of chance, off chances. From the time he's 18 to his early 20s, he's at war the entire time because of chance. He decides to not hop off the train in South Africa. That's all it takes sometimes. So all those thoughts and lessons and philosophies and stuff are very universal. And as well, I think it was very interesting to look at the dichotomy of what Rhodesia was internally. You had a rustic colonial mindset of white paternalism, which in many ways was a leftover remnant of British colonialism. And then you also had this writing on the wall, there will be majority rule mentality, and Chris kind of inhabited both worlds in many ways. And I think a lot of Rhodesians did as well throughout the conflict. Again, it's it's all chance. So... Yeah, it was it was it was very cool to do this podcast, and we can't wait to go over Survival Course. By the way, these books are both available now. www.fireforceventures.com. Please consider purchasing from them rather than a big ticket bookstore. Yeah, it does
2: help uh, us, and it helps, it helps Chris. Chris a little more directly. Yeah, so it helps Chris.
1: Definitely, um, definitely consider buying from there. We'll have Fire Force available and uh, Survival Course available. By the time you're listening to this, we might have probably already sold out, <laughs> yeah. given given how crazy the Fire Force Ventures customers are. But definitely check out those books. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we did. This is actually our first interview, so hopefully yeah. all the audio and stuff is smooth. Um, we try our best. If you have any feedback, you can always send us a message over Instagram or Facebook. It's the best way to contact us. Just the Men Among Men stories pages on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you got anything else to add there, Bindu?
2: Thanks for staying with us, guys, for the two full hours. We know this is a lot longer than our usual podcast, but we hope you enjoyed it. And wherever you are, pull up and grab a chibuli. Cheers, guys.